0: Hi, and welcome back to the Forget the Wine podcast, Reclaiming the Book Club. Remember when book clubs were actually about books? Madeline and I were tired of the book club being portrayed as a thinly veiled ladies' wine night in popular culture, so we decided to fight this bastardization ourselves. Join us as we examine and interpret modern novels. And okay, if you want to drink a glass of wine while you listen, we won't judge you. Well, we won't audibly judge you.
1: Hi everyone, this is Madeline, and I'm currently nomading around the world after working as a software project manager for almost five years. Right now, I'm at an artist workshop in Wincanton, England.
0: And uh, I'm Laura, and this week's book that we're going to be discussing is History of Wolves, the debut novel from Emily Friedland. Um... I found this book really a challenge to get my arms around and understand Um, there's, it's a very meandering plot. And so I decided to paraphrase uh, Jennifer Senior, who is a reviewer at the New York Times, because I thought she did a really eloquent job of summarizing the story. So in her fiction debut, Emily Friedland drops us into the middle of a story, into a life already in progress. Our guide, Linda, or Maddie, or Commie, or Freak, she goes by all four, is 14, and it's summer. We know that she babysits a four-year-old boy named Paul, who occasionally speaks in trance-like sentences about God. We know that she often lacks patience with him, and we know from the very beginning that Paul dies. What we don't know is how or why, just that there's a trial. History of Wolves details a transformative, deeply damaging year in Linda's life. But Linda's no ordinary adolescent. She's more like a child from a fairy tale or a young adult novel. Solitary, unsupervised, left to survive by her wits in the Minnesota woods. She lives on an abandoned commune in a bleak, drafty cabin. She's not even certain if the people she calls her parents are really hers. They may simply be the ones who stayed behind when the hippies disbanded. When Paul and his young mother, Patra, move into the house across the lake, Linda's drawn to them, as they are to her. Each party is lonely. Linda has no friends to speak of, no true sense of family, and Patra's husband is away in Hawaii. Linda starts babysitting Paul. Nurturing does not come easily to her. Then, Patra's husband show up. shows up. Things unravel in a grim, ugly hurry. We, the reader, understand what's going on before Linda does. It takes her a while to realize she's been the passive witness to something awful, and it takes her even longer to process it. Then, simultaneously, or is it simultaneously, Linda's narration isn't tidy or trustworthy. A new history teacher comes to town. Mr. Grierson bonds with Linda as he mentors her through a history odyssey project for class. But then we learn that Mr. Grierson stands accused of pedophilia and having improper relations with high school beauty Lily. We get this story in fits and starts without a sense of the truth or what really happened, or if that even matters. Linda shares snippets, and we learn what that more important than the truth of the matter is the mark that it left on Linda. So, we'll definitely get into more of the specifics of the plot as we... Uh, move through this review, but it really is kind of a mood piece um, about Linda slash Maddie. She goes by both names, which we'll discuss further later, coming of age and um, being in this isolated Minnesota town. So I guess we can talk about... um, one of the real things that stood out about this story was its setting Um, the author is actually from edina minnesota which is maddie and i's hometown it's the high school where we met Um, so i think that we actually do have some kind of a, a, a unique way to relate to this author and have a real sense of of the home that she's writing from Um, While this story isn't set in Edina, it is set in our home state of Minnesota, up north in the woods. So how did you think that the story played into the narrative, Maddie?
1: Yeah, the setting was definitely the most striking piece of this novel to me. And I think that that's the common sort of reviewer feedback that I've read consistently. But I think for us, we have an extra edge in seeing how the setting fits in because of our back- Minnesotan background. Um, because not only does the, does the author really do an amazing job of pulling in the physical setting, and she has really vivid and unique descriptive language that, that creates a very, like you were saying, a moody, trance-like, sort, but yet sort of real um, surrounding. But I think we have a unique perspective in the telling of the story from a Minnesota attitude uh the the minnesotans and the population and the reactions and, and that sort of culture that she creates in this setting that perhaps other reviewers and other readers don't have the privilege uh to see coming from that same background so for me the setting the, not only the the woods uh the weather but the the people and their um personalities played a big, uh, big role in Linda's upbringing and her, the formation of her personality. And I think as we'll see her reactions or lack of reactions to certain situations.
0: Uh, I totally agree. I think um, in Minnesota, just to share some perspective, there is a misconception about the phrase Minnesota nice, that that means that everybody in the Midwest is like friendly and welcoming. That is not what Minnesota nice means. It means that they will be polite and smile to your face, but that you will never get more than a polite nod or smile out of them, that you will never break through um, to really become someone's friend. It's incredibly difficult to make friends here, Everyone's lived here their whole life and is still friends with the people that they met in kindergarten. Um, and that feeling of iciness, politeness, always doing the right thing, always presenting yourself, um, Properly in public, but never really um, being like kind or making deep relationships with people is on display in this book. So you have the sense of isolation from Linda slash Maddie living on um, this lake, on this abandoned commune being so far from society. um, And that makes her feel very lonely. But she also doesn't really have strong connections with anybody in this town and isn't able to easily make them. Um. Mm-hmm. because and much is made actually of the teacher Mr. Gerson um, coming from California like the book really focuses heavily on the fact that he's almost a different species coming from this state that's like um, almost a fantasy to uh, mm-hmm. Linda
1: yeah and I think the, uh, the author did a really nice job of pulling in that like you said that Minnesota niceness that very uh, lack of uh, sur- lack of wanting to get below the surface of other people and forge relationships. Um, one for- moment that stuck out to me was when Patra uh, was talking to Linda and describing how they had just moved there. She said, I go to the diner and see the same people. They all smile and say hi, but no one has asked me one thing about myself. Not my name, not a thing. People are nice in a way, but also not. And then Linda says, jokingly, no one cares too much about what you do here so long as you keep to yourself and don't take all the good fishing spots. Uh, And it says that she joked, but it's actually pretty, I think, accurate uh, that as long as you kind of keep to yourself, don't ruffle any feathers you can get by, but that creates a real sense of loneliness, especially when you don't have those early friendships forged or maybe like your family doesn't have a really good foothold in the community, Um, then you can, I think, run the risk of uh, growing up in a very isolated uh, surrounding in in our home state.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, and and Linda's parents don't do her any favors here. I think that they're very much outsiders and her mom is certainly an outsider by choice and almost chastises linda and seems disappointed in her when she wants to be a joiner or wants to have friends or do the quote-unquote normal thing Um, she almost uh, rebuffs society in general and doesn't like when linda participates in anything with structure so i thought that must be tough for her um, being 14.
1: Yeah, and I, and, uh, one other thing I, that I noticed a ton of reviewers, I think literally every review I read of this novel, which were quite a few, focused on the, the uses of the terms commie and freak. Um, they quoted those two name-calling, uh, usages in, uh, that are the other classmates call Linda. And I thought that was a really interesting one that all the reviewers picked up on that sense of the other, but I think it also really highlights not just the name-calling, but the complete lack of interest in Linda and her feeling of invisibility um, kind of highlights that fear of the other that permeates uh, the Minnesotan mindset. Um, like, for example, later on, she has a roommate in Minneapolis who obviously has a lot of discomfort with Linda and doesn't really know how to act around her Um, and she's described as you know a a very white bread, raised Lutheran uh, girl who is is just living living a normal life and there's a really interesting dynamic between the two of them but I think there's a really deep set fear of, of the other and the unknown Um, That comes out a lot in this novel.
0: Yeah, there's a desire to categorize people and other them um, from yourself. Put everyone in boxes. And I think that kind of brings us to a discussion of some of the larger themes of this book. And I think we have to kind of get into a a little deeper explanation of the plot and what's really going on here. What we come to find out what's happening, and it's kind of revealed to us really slowly, um, is that Paul is sick all the time while Linda's taking care of him Um, and we when Leo the father comes back it seems to get worse and Paul is kind of not moving and just seems to be getting more ill and more ill Um, but he is definitely loved and doted on by his parents she always comments on them bringing him juice sitting beside him on the couch Um, so you know the readers and Linda are kind of confused what's going on is there abuse here how why is he getting so sick? and what we come to learn is that Leo is a very devout Christian scientist and um so that they've not been treating Paul for what was it, an ed- edema that he had in his brain
1: yeah I believe it was a cerebral edema
0: um. So eventually, um, Paul does, which we learn early, but we learn that Paul passes away and that Leo and Patra are put on trial for criminal negligence. Um, so, just to give some background to the themes that we'll be discussing here, um, obviously that plays into uh, a lot of what the author wants us to think about with guilt and innocence and religion and everything.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just a quick question for you, Laura. When did you start to, so, and well, this is getting into the narrative structure a bit, we know from the onset that Paul dies, but we don't really know why. Um, what was the moment for you when you started to pick up on the Christian scientist edge to things?
0: I think um, there's a scene where Leo and... Uh, Linda are having a discussion in a cafe and Leo keeps asking Linda what she thinks happens after she dies and pressing her on some questions related to religion. Um, and he seems really passionate about him. His eyes get different. And this coupled with the other clues like Paul always saying, um, you know, these little religious uh, poems almost like God is strong and I am not Um that kind of—that's how I stumbled into it. What about you?
1: Yeah, I—I I think I started to get a suspicion when she begins to allude to Paul's health and his appearance, because uh, we know Paul dies, um, and so we have to assume that there's either some sort of terrible accident or or illness involved, and. I think part of the reason I first thought Christian scientists is because one of my good friends reads a lot of those memoirs
0: Mm.
1: about children who are raised in that religion. And um, I know that is a huge controversial factor As children have died in the past um, from their parents not treating them for illnesses. So I remember thinking there was some sort of connection between an illness and Isolation And um, yeah, like you were saying, the, the references to God. Um, so I did appreciate that um, sort of lead into that theme of religion, um, that it wasn't sort of sprung upon us in a very obvious way. It did. It was a bit meandering, but it, the reader is led into this, these sort of religious themes um, a bit more uh,
0: softly. Yeah, and and what I liked most about the exploration of religion in this book is I would say that Leo is the only character who's like a real strong Christian scientist. We get the impression that his wife, Patra, kind of agreed to live that lifestyle when she was young and wanted the security of marrying him and now is really reckoning with those consequences. And the book is not Mm -hmm. particularly interested in debating um, the ethics of Leo's decision to not treat Paul's illness, um, and I think that's well well tread ground. In other, like you're saying, there's there's a lot of uh, writing out there about Christian Scientists and, and the decision not to to treat illness. There, um, I think that's a little bit more cut and dry than um, the morality that's really up for debate in this book, which is that of Patra who I think mm-hmm. is struggling to reconcile her love and respect for her husband and the fact that she's agreed to this love, this lifestyle um, with watching her son die before her. And mm-hmm. um, then Linda, who, you know, is 14 and doesn't really understand what's going on and, and how will that affect her that she carries yeah. that guilt with her?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think, I was more centered on Patra's relationship with her religion and her beliefs and um, rather than... Because Leo's character just comes across as a very... We don't know a lot about his background, how he ca- came into this religion, how he came into this faith, whether he's had any struggles with it in the past. He seems to us as the readers very um, dogmatic in a way and, and very devoted without question, whereas um, Patra is wavering. She tries to call some doctors and uh, pediatricians, and she knows something is wrong with her son. She doesn't necessarily convey to us that it's due to uh, a a lack of her faith. She really does believe her son is ill, um, and yet she chooses to to not act. She chooses to let this course of events happen um, and in a paralyzed way. So I am I was much more intrigued by Patra's lack of reaction to her son's dying in, uh, before her. Um, well, you could still tell based on the author's clues that she had a sense of what was really going on.
0: Yeah, a, a, a passage that I found really heartbreaking was at one point uh, Linda happens across a paper that Leo wrote and Patra has edited. And uh, the paper that Leo mm-hmm. wrote is basically um, a motivational speech or whatever that he would give at church talking about Paul's illness and how his belief, um, you know, is going to get them through and that they're going to kind of. Uh, break through the illusion of illness. Um, I'm sure I'm not articulating that in the best way, but um, yeah. but Patras notes are really heartbreaking. She puts edits down, um, and you can see, you know, she'll bring up what about when. Paul asked for, for a glass of juice and just these personal details about Paul where you can see to her it's her son and he's a person and she is definitely not swept up by the dogma um, of, of the religion there.
1: Yeah, and when the part about that passage that really struck me was when she corrects him, he says, in, his, in Leo's text, he says that Paul no, he understands because he's not matter or, um, something about his essence of being. And then, uh, it was so sad. Patrick says, didn't he say, I don't matter. Like Paul said to his parents, I don't matter. Yeah. And, uh, that was, oof, I feel like that was a little bit of a punch in the gut <laughs> because there, here is this four year old child who of course, um, is, is, just this innocent trusting uh affectionate little boy and he can tell you know he's very 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 ill and um this this lack of action from his parents to take care of him um yeah that that sentence really struck me pretty deeply too
0: Do you think that um, Friedland, the author, is taking any particular stance on religion? It plays a big role in this book being the focal point of the um, story of of Paul and Patra, but also it's in Linda's history as well. Her parents uh, began a commune slash cult they call it both interchangeably in the book and um it sounds like linda has a lot of kind of feelings wrapped up in in that as well and maybe doesn't think it was the most honorable or best thing or best place to grow up for her so do you think friedland was intentionally making a statement
1: you know i don't think she at first at first when i knew that paul was going to die because his parents were christian scientists I thought she really was trying to say something about that, and maybe on a very. Uh, I, I, but after reading some of the interviews and some of her uh, thoughts on the matter, I don't think she was really trying to place guilt anywhere. She's more preoccupied with this question of culpability and uh, what, how our lack of action can sometimes deeply define us rather than only our actions. And again, I think this kind of falls back to that Minnesotan core of uh, this innate sense of letting things be that a lot of Minnesotans have. Like uh, she says, Linda says about her father, hadn't he always made it seem a great kindness, the greatest kindness of all, not to ask too many questions, So she's brought up with this mindset of everyone has their, their personal life behind closed doors. They, they don't want to share with other people and you don't really want them to share it with you. So let's just let people be and we'll just let everyone live their own lives. But that sometimes falls into a trap of, of letting terrible things happen, uh, that could have otherwise changed due to some sort of action or some sort of uh, stepping in. So I think that's more of the question that the author was preoccupied with rather than a right or a wrong in regards to religion.
0: I I totally agree. I saw religion as, or or the Christians, the family being Christian scientists as almost a plot device, something Mm -hmm. to set up, um, this tragedy that happened to Paul. I I really don't, I think that's kind of the most simple reading is, is her making a, a a real stance against being a Christian scientist or not medicating your child. I totally agree with you that Mm -hmm. she's just using that as um, a, a story device to say, um, almost Leo is, the least culpable in her writing, I think, because she's telling us he really deeply believes um, that Paul will be healed. Um, He almost, you know, he's just blindly truly believes that his son will be healed. He really thinks he's doing what's best for his son. Um, When Patra, who's the character that's more interesting and more focused on her doubt is really the moments Mm -hmm. that we feel. Um, her guilt and culpability the most, the moments where she tells Linda, okay, yeah, maybe you should go grab some Tylenol. So we really see, okay, she does know what's going on. She knows how close to the brink um, Paul really is.
1: Yeah, and that moment where Patra, this is towards the end of the the novel itself, um, Linda reveals to us that as she was leaving to go get Tylenol, she saw Patra from the door mouthing, Help us, please, help us, and in a really exaggerated way, and that seemed struck me as very morbid, and really drove home that that guilt of of Patra in a way that that she really did understand uh, that her son was about to die, and she wasn't going to do anything to stop it.
0: Yeah, the the last few days of Paul's life in the book are are really horrifying to read in a very quiet way. Um, you know, as Mm -hmm. we've mentioned, there's never any, any, any violence. Um, his parents are very loving to him. They're doing puzzles in the shape of owls with him. Um, but just seeing kind of Patra's, uh, mental decline and the stress of knowing, Uh, her child's fate and trying to wrestle with whether she trusts her husband, who she's always looked up to, who she's always thought was the brilliant, smart one, or really trusting what's right in front of her eyes, what's happening to her son, um, was was pretty horrifying. I thought it was really well written, her um, almost descent into a little bit of madness. It was not overdone at all. It was really subtle and nice.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, based on some of the interviews I read, that's what she was going for in, in her tone was that, like you're saying, that soft violence <laughs> that something can be truly horrific without, by due to a lack of action, due to that slow descent.
0: And, and so, what about the plot of Mr. Grierson and uh, the charges against him? Uh, as as engaging in inappropriate relationships with minors. That's a plot that's kind of woven in and out of the story of Paul and Patra throughout this novel. Uh, So I have to think that it's meant to bear some relation um, to our story of Paul. How do you think that plays in?
1: Yeah, this was the part of the novel that I really, I personally believe was a bit forced into the narrative. Because um, by all, all accounts, the this novel started as a shor- in the first chapter, it started as a, a a standalone short story where it's really more focused on the the pedophile teacher narrative. But um, the author was really taken with this protagonist, this narrator, and that's what developed into this novel uh, to sort address some of those questions of isolation, of how setting informs personality. So to me. The, there was some relation with uh, Mr. Grierson and Lily and how it shaped and, and gave us a view into Linda, who she was. Um, her advances towards Mr. Grierson, I think, really showed how lonely and desperate for some sort of human connection she was. Um, but, and, and there were certain aspects of her. The lawyer is her as the observer. The lawyer, the um, the way she follows Lily and and watches her and seems to almost have a an envy and a desire to either be her or be near her and be close to her. So I, I think there was a lot shown to us about Linda's personality, but it was trying to fit too much into one narrative uh, to include this piece. And I think it actually detracted from the stronger point of her novel. Um, and it was t- distracting. Yeah.
0: I, I, I tend to agree with you. The Mr. Grierson plot was definitely less effective for me overall. Um, but I also think that there were some thematic elements tying the two stories together Um, ultimately when Mr. Gerson is arrested, they find photos like inappropriate photos in his apartment. And Linda notes that they're wrapped up like a gift waiting for someone to find. So I think, um, you know, Gerson is obviously wrestling with his culpability and, 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 uh, guilt, uh, for being attracted to minors, Um, so there, there were some like paths there that connected the two stories, but you're right. I don't think that they were natural enough, um, to, to sustain my interest. Yeah. And
1: yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't so out of the waters that it stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, but I, to me, it was it was engaging at first because that's how the novel starts and it really pulls you in and her, um, description of the high school setting, I think ties in really well to the, uh, I think she does a really good job describing high school in Minnesota, how the hockey players are like God. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought you also might really relate to that coming from, um, you done a high school. Um, uh, but I think she did a really nice job in that aspect uh, of the descriptions. But it it got to the point where I think it pulled things out, it drew things out a little bit too much. And uh, I was more concerned with the tension building with the plot with Paul and Petra and Leo and the moments where she went back to the Lily, Mr. Grierson plot line that they started to become a distraction and they started to muddle the narrative and make things a bit more confusing and less clean and linear. But she's a, she's a great writer, but these, they started to pull and swirl too much to, uh, to I think it affected the sort of pure element she was going for with, with that isolation, woods aesthetic.
0: Yeah, well said. I totally agree. I think it mud- muddied the waters of what really could have been a, a clear, near-perfect, like, short novella. Um, let's talk a little bit about gender, as we like to do. Um, so while this book was filled with some, you know, we mo- mostly focus on females in the story. Our narrator, Linda, is obviously a female, and then her most significant relationship is with Patra, and... Um, and her conflict with her mother is focused on much more than her father, who's kind of just painted as like a, a bystander in her life. Um, so, but how did you feel that genders were portrayed in this book? Cause I have notes from you that, that say that you felt like male dominance was a the theme here.
1: Yeah. I, well, I think that power structure was a big theme and, um, and I, I, I think that it does come out a lot of the time as power structure does in in the gender narrative of male dominance versus um, and and female submission. Um, But I think Linda was very unique in that way uh, that she seems to oscillate between these feelings of power and uh, like she gains a lot of power through her observation, through her... Very um, keen sense of just watching people and gaining uh, knowledge about their personality through their really small actions. And, uh, like, for example, Leo, she notices that he packed a pair of black slippers for the night that they, the, their whole family went to Duluth and stayed in the hotel. And she notes, He was a man who couldn't be without slippers, which made me sad and maybe a little repulsed by him. So she makes a lot of these observations, and she picks up on the perversion in Mr. Grierson and makes a note of it. And uh, she is the one who uh, makes an advance towards him, which uh, definitely, I I think this passage points out the predator-prey sort of element to it. Where she says, his throat looked as wide and soft as a belly exposed. So I stretched out and kissed him there, which I don't know if that was a revolting moment for you. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that exposed belly imagery, like that, it really, I think, blatantly is saying she is, sees him as prey in that moment. So I really appreciated that, um, that although there were some traditional male dominance features in that, Patra is really uh, submissive to her husband, and um, you know, Mr. Grierson is uh, a pedophile who preys on young girls. Linda sort of flips the narrative, flips the traditional structure there. Um, which, yeah, what are what were your thoughts on the power and the gender uh, dynamics here?
0: Uh, I thought. More than average, which doesn't mean that females, like, crossed over that 50% mark to to dominance there at all. Um, but I thought more than average, there were some strong women in this book, both in good ways and bad. Um, like, for example, I think that there's strong implication that Lily, the high school girl, um... Uh, took advantage of Mr. Grierson's affinity for younger girls and used it a little bit to, Mm -hmm. um, like seduce him. I think that's the, that's the, uh, way that it's presented in the book. I don't know if, you know, I agree at all that if a 15 year old can bear any responsibility for, for seducing a a 30 year old, but I I do think it's presented that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and sex in this book in general is really weird. There's a scene um, yeah. where Linda's staying at a hotel with Leo and Patra, and she oh. sees uh, Patra performing oral sex on Leo. And um, is really like focused on it and taken by it. And it's something that she comes back to later in her memories as well. And I just thought that that was significant, that it was an act of Patra like gratifying Leo where, you know, it easily could have been written as um, a sex scene between them where they're both gratified. Um, but I thought that that was significant that one of Maddie's um, first like, encounters up close and personal with sex was seeing, um, you know, oral sex performed by a female.
1: Yeah, and that element of really intense sexuality associated with being the the voyeur, being, uh, with watching these acts, Um, like, she also, there was one scene that really um, stuck out to me with that theme of observing where she... She often looks in on their home, um, on the Paul and Patra and, and then later Leo living in in their cabin. Because she can see through all the windows. It's in the middle of the woods of Minnesota. It's pitch black except for all the lights on in this cabin. Um, and she has this obsession with watching them. And there's one moment, uh, let me find the quote here, where she, she comes back. She gets in the canoe, goes out into the lake, and looks at their house and then she comes back and she goes up to the loft over her parents' bedroom and masturbated miserably, my wiry pubic hair catching between my fingers. And that wording and that image really stuck with me too with, with this, she has this really, um, I think, yeah, I, like you said, sex has a really unique sort of role in this book. And I'm not exactly sure what the author's trying to say about it either.
0: Well, I thought the um, prevalence of voyeurism in this book, you know, almost in every chapter, uh, Linda slash Maddie will mention, oh, the light was coming in, um, was blocking my view of their windows so I couldn't see in. You know, she's always looking in. Um, she steals not steals, borrows a headband from Patra that she wears to feel close to her. Like it's a lot of like almost single white female stalking type of stuff. She just wants to Mm -hmm. feel so close to this family and be inside of it um, without Mm -hmm. actually being accepted in. And so obviously I think um, having her be in such a role of a voyeur, um, it, it plays into standing idle and watching Paul you know pass mm-hmm. away as well she she's not a part of things she's just watching him go um she's not taking action she's not asking for help um so i think that's like action inaction guilt the the uh, innocence of the bystander all kind of plays mm-hmm. into uh the themes presented in the novel here um let's see so it is you know almost all the descriptions of this book start by noting that it's a coming of age novel um definitely not a typical coming of age novel um but there were some interesting passages that i just wanted to throw at you really quickly um
1: great.
0: <laughs> there's one i don't i don't have them exactly right now but there's one passage where um Linda talks about age differences and how Paul is 11 years younger than her, she is 11 years younger than Patra, and Patra is 11 years younger than her husband, Leo. And I thought that that was a really obvious um, way to, to kind of break down... Uh, how, how different all these phases of life are. Obviously, the difference between a four-year-old and a, and a 15-year-old is so much greater than a 15-year-old and a 21-year-old. And then the difference still between um, 21 and 32 is, is smaller still. Um, and I just, there is a lot of her wondering what Patra was like at 14, wondering what Paul would be like at 32. And I thought that that presentation of aging was really interesting. Did that stand out to you?
1: Yes, it did. Um, And I'm just trying to find, there was one moment, and actually I'm glad you picked up on that and mentioned it because I think very explicitly the author in in another interview uh, not like I read all of her interviews in preparation <laughs> for this. <laughs> but she said how it was really important to her that um Linda uh was in the middle of those ages, that exactly in the middle of Paul and Patra's age, because it, it it is that sort of turning point where she oscillates between being feeling like an adult, feeling the mature, like we were saying, how she's such a keen observer and she picks up so much information. And yet she also has a very childlike, naive view and interpretation of things. She doesn't really understand the consequences. um, And she wasn't really equipped with um, understanding social norms in a traditional way either because of her upbringing. So I think that the fact that she's right in the middle of them was very intentional and there was one moment where she first meets patra where you can tell that an infatuation is starting to form and she notes about patra how quickly she shifted between faces between soothing mother and conspiratorial adult it pleased me for reasons i could not explain to be a part of the latter allegiance so she's really taking with patra because patra Bonds with her, maybe because that's her only option in their setting. But she, that is, I think, the basis for her obsession with Patra and her, as you can pick up on a lot, disdain for Paul and her repulsion by his youth, by, you know, him, his nudity. Even though he's a four year old little boy, she's really uncomfortable with his body and his tantrums and, and she it's it's like she's trying to reject these, these childlike elements.
0: Yeah, absolutely. At one point she gets in a fight with Paul when he's trying to go to sleep and she says, "You're supposed to be a cute little boy." Um and he scratches her across mm. the face and and you can really feel her shame afterwards for um Like retreating more to that four year old self than uh, being mature and trying to emulate the Patra's self. Um, So she definitely is just striving to be older all the time. And and what I loved is the dreamy way that she talks about what life will be like when she's older, how she'll be when she's Patra's age in the beginning of the book. And then the perspective switches and we hear her narration from when she's 37. And she says something to the effect of like, later I did end up becoming an adult. I had a car payment, a PO box, a cell phone bill. Um, like just these super mundane things that ended up being the reality of adulthood to her. I really loved that contrast.
1: Yeah, and with the coming of age narrative, for me, this is again one of the things that personally detracted for me from the book was that there was no there. She doesn't really seem to grow or mature or learn beyond age 15 it's almost as if her growth stopped there and um you see her as a narrator um and she's when she's 37 you get glimpses of her when she's older when she's 26 there's a lot of time spent in the second part of the novel um as the 26 year old when she's living in minneapolis but she she begins she has some epiphanies But she doesn't really change or grow in any way. She resists it. And for me as a reader, that was very dissatisfying. Um, even though this novel gave me a lot to think about and this character gave me a lot to think about, I really did long for some sort of, (laughs) some sort of not necessarily redemption, but it, it made me feel really sad that it ended with her stagnation just not, it just staying stagnant.
0: What I agree with thoughts you. on that? Yeah, I agree with you that that's probably not narratively satisfying. I guess it didn't bother me as much because I think that that is true to reality. When somebody experiences a trauma at a young age, I think they often do really get stuck in that mindset. Um, I think watching Paul die and, and being close with that family – um, and not having a support net to deal with that effectively after did like deeply traumatize and shake her. So to me, it made sense that she was stuck at at fifteen. But yeah, I I don't think that she's maybe the the character that I'm going to like deeply relate to and see myself <laughs> in. Hopefully,
1: yeah. Um. Well, that's the thing though. She did have a chance when she was dating a mechanic in Minneapolis, which. I don't know if, if this bothered you, Laura, but I thought <laughs> I thought this character was pretty cliched. Um, a mechanic who with, a, uh, you know, like a piercing. Yeah, who was a also. guy with shoe. a heart
0: of gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> who was also um, a psychology major. And oh, yeah. I think she at one point said he had a, a love of Carl Jung and <laughs> a knack for fixing carburetors. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That, that was a that was an <laughs> oof moment for me. <laughs>
0: Everybody but, is allowed a few.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, but she so she did have a chance because he really his character really pushed her. Uh his character really pushed her to face um to face her demons and gave her a chance to open up and to he was telling her basically, even though he didn't understand the what had happened to her he was telling her that she should let go of her guilt and that she wasn't a bad person but she rejects that in and goes back to, to Loose River the fictional place where she's from up north and so she did have a chance but you're right I think maybe she just wasn't equipped enough for it but that was almost worse in a way for me yeah. that you know it's over a decade later and she's she had she still hasn't um, taken taken that offer even though she had these realizations she still hasn't changed
0: yeah no I did not find the ending satisfying if that's the larger question (laughs) at all it's really frustrating let's talk a little bit about the writing um in a in a general sense so um I think building tension is kind of one of Friedman's Friedland's strengths in this uh, novel. Um, Like I said, we're kind of Paul's condition is revealed sort of slowly to us. So how effective do you think that was?
1: I appreciated it at first. I think, um, like she, we we talked about this a little bit before, but the author says explicitly her goal is never to shock the reader. This isn't a typical thriller, it's not a typical mystery. We're given uh, the we're given sort of some of the facts right away. Um but she still does build up a sense of mystery and tension through the fact that we don't know what happens, we don't know how he dies, we don't know much about Linda. Um so I appreciated that she wasn't hammering us over the head with with, you know, red herrings and um, with a constant need to read on of like, oh my gosh, what could possibly go wrong? Um, but uh, I, I like that she was nuanced and subtle. I do think in the first part of the book, it got to be too, um, it was drawn out too much. I started to lose interest. I thought that some of her descriptions and scenes with Paul and her babysitting were superfluous, and I lost some of the curiosity and tension that she had started to build within me from the onset. And so I think that she did a very good job at the beginning, but she w- didn't really follow it all the way through, that sense of tension, that sense of... Um, yeah wanting to know wanting to dig deeper into a mystery but what were your thoughts on that
0: i think you figured it out sooner than i did the christian scientist bit so so i was engaged for a while longer and also i just found patra to be such an engaging character that i wanted to spend time with her like as long as possible any page that patra was on i was like wrapped and reading it um She was just so interesting to me because we didn't have a clear sense of her moral compass. Um, And she, too, in the same way that um, Linda was moving between, like, herself that was Paul's age and herself that was Patra's age, I think Patra was a little bit stuck with sometimes wanting to just forget her responsibilities and act like a teenager and trying to live up to this marriage of this really intellectual, um, devoted uh, Christian scientist man. So anytime I got to spend with her, I was I was glad. Um, and I thought that she was just such a mysterious character that I always felt a sense of tension when reading about her. So that kept me engaged. But I,
1: I can see that element to it, but then what we found out about Patrick's background, very, I felt like it was very hasty, very rushed. Um, she was the youngest of a large family with a significant age gap. Um, she grew up, I think, in Wisconsin and then went to college, married her professor. And, um, so I, I, I agree that she was a very compelling character, but then it seemed as if some of the background for her foundation was, was rushed and not really, um, it didn't really give enough basis for her actions to me.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that story is a strength in this novel. I think it's much more atmospheric and place setting. So how did you think that that was achieved? Um, a lot of reviews mentioned this isn't a traditional, narrative structure, although it doesn't jump around in time too crazy, um, but definitely there are, it's not A, B, C, D. So how did you think that affected your reading?
1: Yeah, I appreciated the uniqueness of it. I think that it wasn't overly confusing. I think sometimes where novels fail at this is that they try too much and they jump around without really maybe it's all makes sense in the author's head, but to the reader, all of a sudden you're in November of 1986 and you don't know how you got there, you know? Um, so I think some, that she did a good job with really placing us and being very explicit when she was making these jumps. Um, I do think that in the first half in part one, it, 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 again, this felt a little bit forced to me that she was, Jumping back from age thirty-seven to twenty-six, scenes from her childhood to um, the bulk of the novel, which is her teenage years, I thought that it it was a bit unnecessary. It didn't really help drive the story for me or help me learn new things about Linda that she was jumping around in these different times. Um, it, it lost it. It's lost its effectiveness for me in part one, um, it, but. It it's, uh, felt more like it was something that the author was playing with because she was really interested by it. But then in part two, I think she did a much nicer job with tightening things up, and she was more streamlined and jumping back from age 26, where she starts to look back and have these realizations about herself and what happened to her. And the, her age herself at age 14, when the majority of the story is happening. So I thought, and then there were a few glimpses into her childhood that gave us a sense of what might've created this isolation, this craving for human contact because she was so closely, um, she was so closely and chaotically involved in people's lives in the commune as a very small child. There was no sense of boundaries. And then it was stripped away from her, which left her, which I think enhanced her sense of isolation, um, as a young adult so part two it worked much better for me I thought that it was just well constructed but um, there there were certain parts of it that felt very forced at the same time what were your thoughts on the narrative structure?
0: Um, I almost think you know you're saying that we don't see Linda go through a whole lot of growth in the novel so I'm not sure that the parts of her looking back um were necessary i think i would have preferred just to live in the story of her being 14 i'm not sure how much she Mm -hmm. really learned looking back on this summer that kind of changed the course of her life forever i think we would have understood the weight and the gravity of her being involved in this even if we didn't see its effects um Years down the road, I'm just mm-hmm. not sure how much it added to the novel for me, but it wasn't something that I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. I hate this. <laughs> it didn't bother me, but I don't yeah. think we needed it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because we're hit with this sort of barrage of a quote unquote epiphanies. I think on the bus ride back to her town of Loose River, um, she has some moments that are uh, often quoted in the reviews of, you know, what. What makes us do what we do? It's, or it's not what you think, but what you do that matters. She has a lot of these sort of snippets of really profound thoughts, um, all at once, but then, yeah, there's not really anything done with them. So I, and according to another quote from the author, she says, It is my sense that we often only come to understand the importance of the most profound events of our lives. In retrospect, I was trying to figure out a way to tell a story that shows how that happens. So I think for her, the narrative structure in that way was really important, but she didn't really achieve what she set out to do with it.
0: I totally agree. I just think that we understood um, the profundity of of Paul's death on her life, um, in the moment we, we didn't need to look back on it.
1: Yeah. And really quick. She also, because she is such a keen observer, uh, and she's, she's so alone all the time. She has, she's always in her own head. I think you're, you're right. That really, she is able to absorb and, and observe things and almost like an outsider from herself in the moment. Um, and that was one thing that also really didn't work well for me in the novel with the narrative jumping back and forth in ages is her voice never really changes at all. Um, there is, it's the same, it's, you know, she's age 26, age 37, age 10, and her voice and, um, narration is just the same exact as throughout the whole book. Um, so that also, um. I think didn't didn't work well for me.
0: Agreed. Do you have um, final thoughts on the mo- novel before we move into like our reading recommendation?
1: Um. Yeah. No. Just that I I think that I really admire that this author what this author did with with the setting again going back to what we started talking about. But the part of the reason I admire it is because not many people in in the U.S. or or outside of the U.S., want to pick up a novel about Minnesota, um, and <laughs> uh, not many people are intrigued by that setting. I think um, so. I think that I really admire the fact that she was able to create such a real atmosphere and a real, and uh, that was such an important piece for so many readers. Was that image and surroundings that she created with it? So, uh, and I think especially people who have probably never been to Minnesota and have no connection with it. Um, The fact that she was so skillful in that regard, I I admired that especially.
0: Totally agree. It it represented Minnesota really well. Um, Do you want to give like uh, your ultimate thought and whether (laughs) you recommend this or not?
1: Yeah. So my ultimate thoughts is that this, it's a novel worth picking up and reading um, if you're interested in seeing into the mind of a teenager. And um, I think this is a really, this is a really unique, like we talked about coming of age narrative um, and, and into seeing something a little bit different, a narrative structure that isn't black and white. Um, it, it's a novel that gives you a lot to think about and, um, that you can find, I think, a lot of different facets to focus on. So I admire the complexity. Um, That being said, I don't think that it necessarily warranted all of the um, extreme praise that it got. And um, it was also shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Um, But just personally, with my reading of it and some of the weaknesses that I found in the narrative and uh, structure, I was a little bit surprised that it was put on that short list. Um, So I do recommend it, um, but I don't necessarily, this for me was not a life-changing book. It it didn't leave me with any deep, profound lessons, um, but it, it was, Uh, enjoyable to dissect and um and explore from a literary standpoint what were your thoughts laura
0: well this is fun we all we uh don't often disagree and i'm way higher on this book than you are um Mm -hmm. it it really has stuck with me since i finished reading it about a week and a half ago um passages, characters keep coming up and, and sticking in my head, which is not typical for me in a book. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the content is there in this book to make a perfect 150-page novella. I think that the only real faults here are could be fixed by editing and literally just deleting extra content out. Um, the bones mm-hmm. of, of a really strong... Uh, moving story are there Um, not Mm -hmm. to mention i I really love the writing in style um and and place setting and and word choice and and all of that Uh, i would 100 percent recommend it um i loved it and and i would say uh, it can be tempting to kind of rip through it and read it very quickly because it's not it doesn't go down tough like it's um written from a teenager's perspective and it's pretty easy and fast to read but i would definitely encourage you to like take a couple extra days with it and and digest in between um chapters because i I do think that there's so so much packed into this story and and a lot of it's worth considering and unpacking um and I don't know if I would say it would change. It changed my life. That's a high standard to hold a book to, but uh, it changed my week for sure. I really enjoyed spending time with it. So I loved it.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with you that I think if she had cut out the pedophile narrative, I think for me, this would have been a much more poignant and, um and strong book. Um, I think that the, the, the narrative with Mister Mister um, Mr. G, I, I, Mister Pierce. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I I think that that narrative for me was just too distracting and too detracting. I've spent too much time trying to figure it out, and to be honest, like a lot of her interviews and reviews don't really delve that deeply into it either. Um, and I, to me, it uh, I think that this book would have been much. Higher rated, in my opinion, than if that had been taken
0: out. 100%. So I I would say that this, we just made a couple suggestions of like, if you're a fan of X, you'll probably like this book. So I would say The Girls by Emma Klein had a similar feel to it the girls was also very atmospheric kind of told through murky memories a narrator looking back at their life um and it's also kind of about uh, this isolated area obviously in the girls it's a commune i guess in this book it's a commune too but uh, a, a non-operating one <laughs> in, in rural minnesota so a lot of similarities there did you have any like tips on if you loved x you might really like history of wolves
1: yeah, well, this is actually one book I haven't read myself. I've been meaning to, but *The Bell Jar* is another coming-of-age story that I saw referenced in some of the reviews that um, was that it was compared to, and as well as um, *Jane Eyre* with the governess theme, uh, the the outsider coming into a family, and also the, the heavy questions that are raised. By, um, by the authors in, in both History of Wolves and, and Jane Eyre. So those are two books that I've seen strongly associated with this one.
0: Good. Well, thank you so much for listening to our discussion of History of, of Wolves. It sounds like both Madeline and I would give it um, her more tentative than mine, but definitely a thumbs up and <laughs> would recommend to readers. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back soon.
1: Thanks, everyone.